This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Cheap Form. Captagon. Mid-aughts SF Films. And Mother Shipton. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. It's time once more to wander into the Gaming Hut, but this time around, the Gaming Hut is pretty splendid. It's a freestanding structure, and uh, not only that, but it's funded by the government as sort of a youth outreach program, but they don't really check. And so it's a tabletop RPG clubhouse somewhere in Sweden or Denmark. Because, Ken, we are going to respond to a question posed, a follow-up, if you will, from mm-hmm. Paul Patrick Backer, Hector Trelane, who says, In the segment on Improv for Gamers with Karen Twelves, Ken refers to the Jeep form movement and said it flipped a switch in a positive way in his trad gamer GM's brain in a manner that helped his GMing thenceforward. Can you tell us more by explaining what that movement is and what Ken meant? What is the movement, and what did you mean, Ken? What did I mean? Jeep Form is technically the name of the type of game that was made by the V. Acker Jeep Collective, which means we go by Jeep. They began around 2000 putting out games of this form, and it evolved from Swedish freeform tabletop games. And freeform is generally considered to be sort of, you're playing a tabletop game, So it's not a LARP. You're not in costume. There's not a a sort of a set thing, but you've stopped using dice. You've stopped sitting at the table. You're sort of standing up, inhabiting your character and back and forth thing. Maybe once a session, someone will throw a die to determine, you know, a a literally random act, but everything is supposed to be brought out in inter-character play. Right. And let us now swear not to 
vanish down any definitional rabbit holes because exactly. all of these terms have drifted or have been used differently by other people. Yeah. So I've been in a very Jeep for me game where we all sat around in a living room in Copenhagen mm-hmm. and uh, other people use the word freeform to refer to LARP. So just deal with the terminology. Yes, people. but this is what the Jeep formers themselves say. So there we are. And those Jeep formers began, I believe, as Tobias Rigstad, Frederick Berg Ostergaard, and Ola Johnson. I think that was sort of the beginning Troika or the motor behind uh, V. Ecker Jeep. They brought on a bunch of other game designers. They proudly claim Emily Kerr Boss now as part of Jeep Form. And who wouldn't? If you had an intellectual movement in gaming and you could plausibly claim Emily Kerr Boss, you absolutely should. That's just basic common sense. That's just straight up logic. But anyway, their game style sort of privileges mundane events. In their list of enemies, they said things like dice, dragons, and New York. So they wanted to be mundane. They wanted to be games about regular life, often with an emotional focus, sometimes a thematic or political focus. There are games about, you know, fat shaming, things like this. It encourages bleed. Other LARPs say, don't get emotionally involved in the game. Cheap form is like, that's literally the point of art. We're here to encourage bleed and transparency is a virtue. So the players, all the players should know as much about the game going in as possible. Some Jeep forms like to throw a little twist on you or a surprise, but by and large, often you'll know the end state. It'll be like, we're playing the game of why did you kill your wife? And we're going to end with you killing your wife. And here we're setting it up. And that's the story. So the play is to experience how you get to a climax, how you get to a moment, which therefore sort of implies that the scenes are highly structured because you're going somewhere. You're in a Jeep, perhaps. And if the scenes seem to be sort of repetitive or um, uh, they're over, really, the GM is just encouraged to cut and say, we're done now. An hour later, boom. And often that sort of playing with time is part of the uh, sort of the meta characteristics of Jeep. They do monologues. Sometimes the GM will point and say monologue about what your character is thinking. There's something called birdie in the ear, which is the GM coming up and telling you a stray thought your character has had, and you can accept or reject it. Usually you accept it because that's the point of Jeep form. Like I said, playing with time, a lot of things are cut way out of order. So you'll do a scene and someone will say, now the scene two days ago before you met her and like this character, non-monogamy, if the Jeep is about an imperious father, maybe everyone gets a chance to play the imperious father in various scenes. So all of these techniques, they're not all used in the same Jeeps, but many of them are sort of coalesced and, and fluctuated around this bunch of freeforms that beginning Tobias and Frederick, but then a bunch of other people in their ambit also began to write. And I ran into Jeep form at Ropicon in 2006 when I was in Helsinki and Tobias was also a guest of honor along with, I don't know how many of the other Jeepers were also guests, but I met a lot of them and I played some Jeep. I talked to them, you know, about theory and it really was just none of these techniques are common in trad and doing all of them at once was sort of a, you know, into the deep end with me type moment. And so the sort of, we talked about, what they called the Carmine Infantino school of uh, GMing, where you describe the cover, Superman is going to grow a turtle head. And then you have to figure out how to get to that cover because that's what Carmine Infantino used to do to the people at DC Comics. He'd give them a cover and say, write the story around that. And so that sort of approach 
is super liberating if you're thinking of, you know, the game has to be like this, it has to do these things. Even a, many of the indie games were still sort of in the pattern of everyone plays one player, games happen in narrative time, you have to sort of account for all the events, all these things that are carryovers from D&D and Call of Cthulhu and, you know, the beginnings of the form. And the Jeepers are just blowing it all up willy-nilly, and it's great fun. Obviously, I respect but do not share their attachment to mundane human development, but I really liked their ways of sort of looking at the narrative as sort of a project to be cut up and moved around and, and thinked about. And I have introduced some of these techniques in some of the games generally as a, this is going to be a special episode, or this is going to be a you know a, a moment that I'm I'm really trying to work towards an emotional theme as opposed to a, a a regular story beat type thing, and those techniques just pay off in spades. I think partly because they're unfamiliar, and so American regular gamers get sort of a charge out of them, but also because they really work for their intended purpose. But you know, it's it's like a backhoe. You you don't use it on your lawn all the time, but when you need to use it, that's the only thing you want. Right, and so there've been different offshoots and other people working in parallel. And so Jeep is a subset of the broader Nordic freeform movement. And so some of the things that particularly I will say will not necessarily apply to Jeep form. And if you're deep into this and, you know, you know, the different, you know, schisms and tendencies, please accept my apologies for not being up on your particular version, which is surely the best one and or why everyone else's is wrong. Right. And and please inform us in a in a lengthy reasoned essay in the Patreon comments. Right. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah. With, you know, an additional extra money to pay for us to read your <laughs> essay. I, did I say we would read them? I did not. Oh, see, there you go. That's the difference in you and me. So the big thing that I think is, uh, well, first of all, another way of taking the phrase mundane events is to say literary fiction, right? That this is right, yeah. drama. It is not uh, about overcoming obstacles and problem solving. It is about telling stories about people. And you can do it sitting down. You can do it standing up. One of the interesting things about the uh, the Danish scene when I was in Copenhagen was that people would look forward to the arrival of a script for a free form because they'd heard other people playing about it and they were all looking forward to doing it. So there would be, uh, there was one that was based on paradise Lost. There was another based on the last supper and you would await this the same way that you and playing with your group, the way you would a new, new cool movie coming out. The big thing that I think is a big cultural shift between the Anglosphere gaming world and uh, this world is the sort of, interesting reversal of character identification because even though they explicitly encourage you to feel emotions to feel bleed which is an interesting term because it inherently suggests that something bad is happening but <laughs> yeah. just you know if you're watching a movie that's called identifying with the characters and being yeah. moved you start to feel uh, emotions and feel for the characters um the difference though is that i i think that particularly Anglo players tend to still look at your, their characters as being extensions of themselves. And that even if they are playing something that is a literary fiction or dramatic, it is part of a journey of self-realization and self-expression. And I think it's hard to get people to make the shift into think of this as a character that you're playing 
to serve the story. So the big thing that I noticed about the different expressions of Nordic LARP that I experienced and heard about was that your goal is to have the story go the way that it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And you are not trying to, uh, you know, explore your own personal self. You're playing somebody else the way that an actor would. And this is something that I, you know, sometimes try to get people to do and to buy into. It's like, just play this character. This is your character for this. And sometimes people will buy into that. And other times they uh, resist pretty heavily because the whole reason they've gotten into role playing is to explore and express uh, something about themselves. And the level of authorship here is about serving the person who wrote the scenario. Whereas I think even in the North American story game tradition, you're sort of having control taken away from you by the mechanics of whatever the story game is. But there's also the idea that you are your character in some way and you should erect boundaries around that, which is a subtly different mindset between the two approaches. I I think it's a real yin-yang in the sense that there's a little dot of one in the middle of the other because that sort of American immersionism or immersion-adjacent play, which is very, very prevalent, especially in, say, vampire play and, and lots of other games that are also supposed to be about heightened emotion, I feel like there is also a very strong American tendency, I don't say Anglo-American because I don't play with enough Brits, but American tendency to also play the sort of tactical chess piece play where my character is a barbarian and maybe I'm working out my urge to kill my boss because I hate my job, but I'm not really, you know, one with Tragdor the way that I would be one with a character that's feeling love and loss and betrayal. Tragdor just wants to kill bugbears who may or may not be his boss. And that sort of separation is is often aimed for or considered default in a lot of, especially like older American type role playing games and older British role playing games. Right. They, or, yeah. And, and even free forms, especially I think in the Anglo sphere, a lot of it is around their uh, there are some that are about telling dramatic stories, but there are just as many that are about intrigue, where you have a procedural goal that you're trying to achieve by negotiating with other people. And I think the, your default vampire LARP is about that, right? And that's the whole setup of all the different clans. And uh, so they are often more about power and pursuing a goal that you've been given. So the instruction, find out who else will join you and sign the Pact of the River People is very different from you are going to be present for the uh, tragic death of your mother, and that's going to happen. Right. So it is a procedural versus dramatic uh, separation, but it is also a different level of authorship where the scenario is doing more to tell you not only who you're playing, and uh, as you suggest, may come up and give you some internal monologue, Mm -hmm. uh, but also what the outcome is going to be. So it's much more like you are halfway improvising a play right you're doing sort of experimental theater but it's still theater in that way right one of the things that struck me when i was going back and i reread tobias has a big it's not a manifesto but it's sort of everything i thought about jeep at one time and he wrote it down you can read it online and i was going back and rereading all those bits and i kept stumbling over things not stumbling over running into things that reminded me very strongly, not entirely of the words of drama system, although partially that, but also your 
play of drama system. And I guess this is supposed to be up. How was Ken changed and made better by Jeep form? But also Robin did, did drama system get born in those act of it soaked nights in Copenhagen? It was definitely an influence and particularly with the scene framing of the mm-hmm. thing that I took part in and the idea that, Oh, look, here's this gaping whole area, literary and historical fiction mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. we have never dealt with because we are interested in procedural. So that fed into it. The direct inspiration, of course, is the process of analyzing Hamlet that turned into Hamlet's hit points mm-hmm. and then turned into, hey, how do we have a game that focuses on these other dramatic things? It was interesting to me, though, that when I, uh, in the scenario that I did play, I surprised and somewhat nonplussed all of my fellow participants by taking the dramatic instruction that I've been given and just playing it aggressively mm-hmm. and being told, oh, this is what your character wants. So I'm going to do. You're going to go after it. And yeah. taking advice given in a book for actors, Michael Shirtless audition, which is also very influential on drama system and just saying, okay, really go for it hard. And so it, I wasn't as far as I could tell breaking any of the instructions that I was given, but people expected less of a strong series of moves. So mm. that sort of spoke to me of a, a kind of an interesting thing. It was definitely the strong moves that I wanted to make sure were in drama system, that it wasn't a case where you are passively following a script that you've been given to take you through a work of literary fiction mm-hmm. of which all sorts of things are predictable and you're supposed to serve the story and land at a particular point, but rather a dynamic in which making those strong moves would lead to an emergent story that nobody was expecting. Right. And I think that's the big difference between what I experienced as Nordic freeform and what drama system does. Yeah. I, I think that, if you're going to be reductionist, I think you can say that Jeep form is about finding out or experiencing the emotion of a story that is known and Anglo-American tabletop, even Anglo-American free form is about, you know, in the words of the story game movement, playing to see what happens. And those can be, they can coexist. They can exist in the same scenario or the same table, but they are complementary, not identical goals. And, you know, many Jeeps do other things. Many tabletop games now do other things. Jeep form, I think, is definitely in the bloodstream of a lot of designers in, you know, the English-speaking world, in the Anglosphere. And it got changed because, of course, people besides the initial, like every artistic movement, people besides the person who thought it up start doing it, and they do it, guess what, informed by their own creativity. So there we are. That, Robin, is, I guess, my summing up of, of what the movement is. I, I think you said the exact words were, there we are. Which there we are. we're going on to another segment. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. 
featuring three scenarios apiece starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog. Goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project, and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria. And finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in Boundary Waters. And my L.A. hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance, leading to the house up in the hills. Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in High Voltage Kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. The clacking of the teletype, the slamming of the iron doors, the bleep as another documentary pops up on Netflix welcomes us to The Crime Blotter. And today, The Crime Blotter looks at a substance that uh, seems so simple, so perfect, so pure, it can never ever harm us. Why, it's just a Syrian knockoff of an East German knockoff of a German pharmaceutical, Robin. It's called... Captagon. And back in 1961, it began as good old phenylethylene, which is just amphetamine and theophylline, and they joined hands, and they made you feel good. And, and went on an amazing journey that has now led it to be an important bargaining chip and or pile of money, uh, Well, but I already said bargaining chip, uh, yep, right. in the geopolitics of uh, the Middle East. So it's mm -hmm. quite a, an amazing confluence of pharmaceutical and cultural and political uh, history, and it's one that's uh, suddenly getting a lot of attention because of the big ramifications of it. So basically, it's like what is now known as Captagon and is one of the number one party drugs in the Gulf. So if you're a young dude in particular uh, looking to get outside of your skin a little or experience life way more intensely, <laughs> you're looking to buy some illicit Captagon. It's also following another long tradition of uh, meth used by uh, militias, including at its height ISIS, probably still today ISIS, for keeping people awake and jacked and ready to uh, fight. Uh, and uh, as always, when you're trying to explain why people seem uh, radical and off the rails and are doing things that uh, seem unimpeded by reason, one question always to ask yourself is, are they on drugs? Are they high? Are they high? <laughs> yep. And certainly you can give us some historical parallels of past times when they were completely high off their, uh, off their kneecaps. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the question, are they high? First, of course, everyone in the Western world, this is not about those other people. Everyone in the Western world was drunk until the invention of clean water for drinking in the 1830s. Everyone was just lit all the time, often dangerously so. There is a reason 
you know, that recorded crime levels drop like a rock from the Middle Ages to now. We're not all, you know, blasted all the time. But, you know, the German army, the Wehrmacht, of course, made meth a a friend. It was called Panzer Chocolate. They would eat meth and then go invade Russia for a while. And there's still more Russia. Let's keep going. Lots of fun had by that. The British uh, military has always used combat amphetamines. Certainly in Afghanistan and in their war on terror, they they are sort of the leading edge of NATO when it comes to combat drugs. American servicemen, I knew, uh, mainlined caffeine. They mainlined uh, stimulants of all kinds. One assumes there was some stronger stuff in there sometimes. And also, you know, energy drinks are now basically the fuel for the war on whatever we're warring on now, you know, bad thought, I guess. And so there's a bit in Black Hawk Down where they they time the attacks because it's like, oh, everyone's sleeping off their, you know, their their day drinking, but at night they're going to chew cot and get really charged up and that's when we're going to get hit. And sure enough, that's what happens happened in Mogadishu and it's what happens in the movie. So yeah, all all around the world, people are people. That means people are trying to, you know, get a little action going. And often, if you got a gun, well, there we go. Right. And there's other people trying to stop you from doing that and exactly that contraband, and which <laughs> creates a lot of illicit money, which uh, comes to the rest of yeah. us. Sorry. The so, number of uh, armies that just like, you know, do ecstasy and chill out does not seem to be high. But, you know, we can always hope. Right. So Captagon, as you uh, suggested, phenylethylene was originally designed for sleep disorders and narcolepsy. And it's a, a stimulant. And oddly, here's where I think that this becomes worthy of interest is that it was eventually taken off the market. First of all, people considered it a controlled substance. See, it's like <laughs> an amphetamine. So, yeah, of yeah, course. Seems logical. Right. So that was 81 in the U.S. and most of the world had banned it by 86. Nonetheless... In some circles, that just made it all the more attractive. And so it's, it's wild how that works, Robin. We should do a series of controlled drug prohibitions to see how that works. Yeah. And so first in East Germany and then throughout the Eastern Bloc and also I think sort of into, into Turkey, Captagon continued to be manufactured. But of course, when it switches from licit to illicit manufacture, the purity and contents change because illicit manufacturers or drugs have no compunctions about just using whatever is cheap and available to make their drug. And so it basically then becomes a more standard form of amphetamine. It becomes basically meth, but it still retains its brand name and its cachet to this day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is marketed as such throughout the Middle East now. And that's another sort of interesting, you know, it went from Germany to East Germany to the Eastern Bloc and now it's in the Middle East. It's a very popular party drug, as we suggested there. I mean, if you're you're looking for the... For the missing link there, the Soviets built all the factories in Iraq and Syria for about 20 years. So I'm betting that some of those were building Captagon even back in the day. That makes a lot of sense. And the current thing sold as Captagon is much more addictive and powerful than the uh, original pharmaceutical. And the old sort of Adderall, Avant Letra version uh, that they used to have. Yeah. Right. And so the Assad regime, which of course the world... Uh, made an effort to cut off and isolate. Well, effort, sure. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. They uh, <laughs> therefore, well, they got kicked out of the Arab League for mm-hmm. a while, and we'll get mm-hmm. to that later. And so they basically destroyed their own society to keep Assad in power, and they need money. Their economy is uh, down the tubes. And guess what? There's all these Captagon plants or technology, and so Captagon factories spring up 
in border regions, uh, most notably on the border between Syria and Lebanon, but also on the border between Jordan and Syria. And guess what? When there's money to be made in drugs and there's a uh, desperate authoritarian and you're his family member, you have a proposal, Ken, for mm-hmm. Bashir Assad. Yeah, you're, let's say that you're Maher al-Assad, and ordinarily your day job running the 4th Armored Division of the Syrian Army keeps you busy, but you know what? You can see that your brother is overworked. He's got a lot on his mind, and what you say as brother to brother is, why don't you let me handle Captagon manufacture and distribution? And then you can concentrate on just murdering the heck out of everyone in Syria. And a deal is struck, and off you go. Also, because you are in charge of the basically sole source of Syria's foreign exchange, you are in a place of power. And so it needs to be a brother or someone else super trustworthy. You can't just shuffle the Captagon franchise off to Johnny Warlord somewhere. You have to keep control of it. Now, this is not to say that Johnny Warlord does not run Captagon himself because Hezbollah is the other big player in Captagon shipments. So if it's Syrian Captagon, it's probably going south and east into the Gulf. If it's Hezbollah Captagon, it's often going into Europe. And because party drug is party drug, and although Captagon may not have the name brand recognition in Italy that it has in Dubai, it'll still, you know, get you going. So and I would suspect that as it is becoming more famous and has more of a dark glamour around it, that it will start to be more adopted in Europe because, you know, this is their the real stuff like they have in Saudi Arabia. That's right. a selling point if I ever... Legendary party country, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> endorses Captagon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Hezbollah has always controlled the border of Lebanon, and that obviously lets it control smuggling that goes on or doesn't go on. Hezbollah is an Iranian client. Syria is off and on an Iranian client. So it's really a, a, a nature of the five families coming together and saying, you take this market, we'll take this market, and everyone parting friends. But... Saudi Arabians, even in their their new maybe Iran is okay stance, draw the line at shipping literally millions of Captagon pills into their country in the form of pomegranates or hidden inside pomegranates. Yes, or in plastic oranges or right. reduced into a clay-like substance and turned into replicas of traditional clay bowls. And, and these numbers of the amount of, and you, you read just a list of sort of high-profile Captagon seizures, and we're talking literal tons of Captagon, so tons of little amphetamine pills, and the amount seems more than even all the druggies in Abu Dhabi could snort, so the assumption is they're going to the Houthi warlords in Yemen uh, who are trying to overthrow Yemen and be- make it an Iranian client state. And this is another thing the Saudis object to, although less strenuously than they used to. So you've got this trade that, as you said, Robin, at the top of the segment is not just criminal, but it's also geopolitical because it becomes in many ways a weapon of war an armament, especially if you're trying to get a bunch of, you know, guys minding their own business in Yemen to join your militia what better way than free drugs that make you brave and not tired? Right. And as you suggested, sanctions don't work so well when you've got drug money to spend. Exactly. However, the, the Saudis and the other Gulf states still regard the massive inflow of drugs to their young generation. And this is going to, you know, if you're a leader, this is going to your sons and grandsons, right? You don't want that mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Saudi princes have actually been arrested as part of this trade now. It has gotten to that level. Right. So that's as unsurprising a thing as you could guess. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Goodness me. And so much of the reason 
why Syria has just been brought back into the Arab League is, first of all, well, leaving them out of the Arab League didn't accomplish what it was supposed to, and eventually they, you know, have to come to an accord. But also, the big bargaining chip that Assad had was to say, well, guess what? I'm going to crack down on the Captagon trade if you let me back in the Arab League and, you know, put me back under the cloak of legitimacy. And as promised, there were raids immediately after the deal was struck. There was a big raid in Aleppo, which you will gather, uh, you may remember, is a rebel stronghold. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me like the promise was kept by going, oh, I'll eliminate the competition to my brother. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, whenever Hezbollah is accused of, of drug running, they're like, no, look at all the drug runners that we arrest and kill in Lebanon. And it's like, yeah, you know, the Bonanno family knocked off people who were trying to run protection rackets, too. This did not mean what you think it means, apparently. So, yeah, it's it's a matter of Syria had either people who were getting, you know, too big for their britches that they needed to cut down, or as you say, the rebels had gotten in on the free money Captagon business, or, you know, Maher al-Assad's got a, a lieutenant who needed a new gig, and so they send him off to, you know, the new Captagon era. And uh, Meanwhile, you know, Jordan has escalated their drug war to actual war with an airstrike on May 8th against a uh, house where a, a particular drug kingpin lived and they blew it up and they killed him and his, his wife and his six children. And so this is seen as, you know, a big source of destabilization in a region that does not like things <laughs> being unstable. And so this brings us to the, the genre thriller side of things and how to begin to fit this into games. It seems very of the moment. It's, uh, I'm sure it'll be, Captagon has just kind of hit the news now. So in a year or given the strikes two years, uh, we'll probably start to see some uh, thrillers where uh, it sort of revolves around uh, Captagon. But I imagine, Ken, that the uh, vampires of Night's Black Agents, they like money and uh, they, they have no qualms. So they must surely be involved in the Captagon trade. Yeah, because the Captagon trade is also the trade for smuggling coffins or weapons or anything else. That's part of why, you know, all these illicit trades tend to run into the same channels. The vampires have the same interest as Hezbollah in keeping, you know, whatever the channels are into and out of their domain under their control. And the Captagon, one imagines it's relatively easy to just put a little vampire saliva into the mix and suddenly you're you got a party club full of Renfields, or the reason it makes you super not sleepy and super brave and super fast is not because it's just a crazily powerful cocktail of amphetamines that is boiling your nervous system alive. It's because it's vampire spit and Vamptagon or whatever, you know, the, the, the in the no call it. I'm sure they have a better name than that, but, uh, the, the vampire Captagon would be like a, a premium item and it could be the center of the regular Captagon trade. And you come in looking at real Captagon trade, uh, trying to bust up, you know, Assad and, oh, sure enough, there's this inner, Captagon trade. And maybe it might even be that the vampires, because it's so lucrative, because it's such a good vector for their control, and because it makes making Renfield super easy, maybe they're trying to muscle in. Maybe you have to, to your uh, uh, regret, maybe do a deal with the Syrian secret police and say, you're trying to shut down Captagon. Well, here's where the vampire Captagon is. One hand washes the other. Let's help us out. And then that can be the sort of uh, in a in a dust game or a, or a moral qualmsy game, a burn mode game, you know, 
how willing am I uh, to work with human scum to go after these vampires? And that's a great story, whether you said it in the Captagon trade or the cocaine trade or any of the other wonderful illicit traffics that vampires batten upon. Right. And for a little less darkness, you could, you know, ally with the Jordanians. Yeah, you could ally with the Jordanians or um, uh, the Kurds or someone who just wants to blow stuff up uh, owned by bad guys. Well, that that seems like the, the remit of uh, every player character. Exactly. So sure yeah. that will uh, work out. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, go back and uh, speaking of missions, we have another long mission that we've been on, uh, which we will resume after this exciting commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast doesn't become a free form about the demise of this podcast by joining such warmly clad Patreon backers as... Michael Harrison! Oren Gish- Shuri, Paul and Cleo Bushland, Robbie Carlton, and Ruth Tillman. The smell of popcorn, the, it's not even a whir of a projector, Robin, it's all being digitally projected now, it's just the click of the light coming on, but the carpet is uh, getting sticky again, I think, because we're headed into the mid-2000s. But we're also headed to the center aisle, center seats of the Cinema Hut, where we are continuing the Science Fiction Cinema Essentials Film Festival. Right. So let's pick up the thematic thread that we left dangling last week, which is we are now fully in the first decade of the 21st century because 9-11 has happened. There's been enough time for that to start to filter into pop culture. And we're going to look and see at what extent the science fiction films of this era are overlaid with that. And on first glance, it kind of looks like, oh, well, no, it's just kind of continuing on with its the existing threads of films about identity and, t- to repeat myself, uh, Philip K. Dick adaptations. Mm-hmm. But then when we scratch just a little below the surface, we see that the spirit of the era has begun to settle into these more familiar templates. And if you've ever wondered... When did all pop culture start being about trauma? <laughs> Guess what? Around 2003, 2004, 2005. And uh, in a way, we're still sort of in that. We're still working with it, even though we had a new weird era start to occur. Uh, so even something like Primer by Shane Carruth from 2004, a brilliant, hushed, 
deliberately confusing, twisty time travel movie about the uh, the old saw about using time travel to, to take advantage of your ability to bend, fold, and spindulate history in order to make some bucks has this dark feeling of uh, surveillance because one of the effects of 9-11 on cinema is that the fear of the surveillance state, uh, not so much just a fear of terrorist attack, but fear of the reaction to that and of uh, a paranoia really overlays this and the idea that not just identity is being overwritten by people who in their sort of storage unit slash garage find a time travel or make a time travel box, but they are erasing themselves and subjecting themselves to surveillance. Yeah, the um, the surveillance in Primer is mutual surveillance of the two time travelers, Aaron and Abe, that have invented time machines in their garage le- legitimately, just like, you know, Bill Gates or whoever, except it's a time machine instead of a wonky user interface. And they immediately uh, set about sabotaging each other's time travel plans because one of them says time travel is dangerous. You can't be messing around with it. The other says you're just trying to, you know, harsh my mellow. Uh, we built this for a reason. And the act of incomprehensibly interfering with each other leads to the sort of who am I? What's going on? What is reality question? That, that's sort of the, the, the gloss or the frosting of the takeoff from Philip K. Dick, but it leads it in this very super interesting character versus character moment where they're producing their own paranoia and they know it, that they've locked themselves into this cycle with each other. And I feel like you are maybe not too far off if you say that that's a little bit of, you know, post 9-11 activity. Also, I think part of it is just that Shane Carruth wanted to make a time travel movie and said, what is interesting about time travel, not saving Abraham Lincoln or whatever. It's what does it do the time traveler? And that's why his characters are so very, um, uh, uh, real feeling, right. That they, that they seem like actual people who might invent a time machine in their garage, sort of weird, broken nerds, not fancy movie heroes. Right. Uh, speaking of nerds and technology and a film that on the surface doesn't seem to be about what I'm going to tell you it's about is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, directed by Michael Gondry with a uh, screenplay that he co-wrote with Charlie Kaufman. This is about a man uh, suffering from terrible breakup. He is played by Jim Carrey. His ex is Kate Winslet, and he uh, goes to a company called Lacuna, run by Tom Wilkinson, to have all of his memories of her erased, and this leads to a a surreal uh, journey because, of course, if you cut out someone who is very important to your life, you've cut out a part of your own life and you've cut out part of yourself and maybe you didn't want to do that. Also, a film that is about, as they say in the ad for Lacuna, we're going to rid you of painful memories is also 100% about trauma and the desire to escape trauma and the discovery that escape from that is even worse than living it. Yeah, uh, Jim Carrey, as we talked about in The Truman Show, is absolutely capable of giving a great performance for the right material and the right director. He definitely does so here. Every aspect of this film, I mean, if if Primer is the Philip K. Dick, but brought down to sort of street-level realism, this is sort of a a more uh, almost a poetic read on Philip K. Dick that the, although the uh, events are very grounded and very real emotionally, Gondry is, 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 you know, of course, famously the a sort of a cinematic, not to say slapdash, but let's say abstractionist. And he throws stuff up there very poetically. Sort of surreal whimsy. Surreal whimsy. Exactly. And so that quality of the film really takes it into this sort of dreamlike 
And again, it's a what is reality movie like all of them are. But it is also about can I build a reality that is less than human? Can I make can I eat the steak and be happy in the Matrix? And and I think that's the question that the other side of this is not we're going to explore our trauma. We're going to run away from our trauma. We're going to try and go to, I don't know, a world where you can survive being shot or punched or thrown off a high building because you're a superhero. Maybe that's going to start happening. I don't know. Just. Just guessing, just spitballing. And now we come to one that I not only wouldn't call an essential, but actively dislike. Yes, right. Because it is a travesty in every sense. Annoyingly fits my thesis, which is Spielberg's War <laughs> of the Worlds from uh, 2005, which is super explicitly a uh, 9-11 movie. And that is less about the security state and more about the feeling of having been attacked. So it's a super obvious metaphor to bring back the, the Wells novel and readapt it. However, when the Cold War version is less on the nose, (laughs) right? It's also the worst example of the two sides of Spielberg, the dark, true self and the sentimental people pleaser, where the resolution at the end is just sort of so ridiculously uh, slapped on that first couple of acts with the super scary aliens that's Spielberg right in his element. But uh, it fits the thesis. Let's say that. Yeah, even even as a War of the Worlds completist, this would be the one you leave for last. However, a much better adaptation in every sense is Richard Linklater adapting A Scanner Darkly. Uh, Linklater, one of my favorite filmmakers, and so I, of course, loved it. But right. this uh, And adapting Philip K. Dick, it's the best, truest to actual Philip K. Dick Dick movie. Yeah, it is very, very much like the novel, which will surprise anyone who's ever seen a Philip K. Dick movie. And it is, it's terrific. It's done in a sort of a, what is it, rotoscope type animation? A nouveau rotoscope. Yeah, right. Um, And so it it looks uh, fascinating and weird and interesting. Keanu Reeves is once again, sort of a main character who doesn't know who he is. That's 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 one of Keanu's strong points, and he plays to it well. Right. He's either a mundane schmuck or a central figure in a uh, horrible, weird alien conspiracy. Right. And uh, once more, this unreality is brought about by, you know, drug taking. So it fits in with Linklater's sort of urban, not, not urban, Austin druggy culture sensibilities. It works really well with that. It's one of the drugs are bad movies where you sort of, you know, get the vibe and even, you know, what the supposed reveal you're like well is it so bad and again an an authentic feel of real drug culture people keanu has the advantage of having such reliable advisors as robert downey jr and woody harrelson yes Uh, winona Ryder is also great in it who could who could go wrong and yeah it's also about you know maybe i want to eat the steak live in the matrix but it's really about dick's concerns which are about authenticity what is left of you if you take away the drugs if you take away the outside world what have you actually got? Because unlike having your choice of the red pill and the blue pill here, the two hemispheres of Keanu's brain are competing with one another. They're devouring each other. And uh, he doesn't have a choice. It's living two realities at once is the thing that is uh, uh, tearing him apart and collapsing him. And, and again, that rationalization of two realities is something that a lot of people were going through as right. the war on terror continued. And once again, this is full of security state imagery that it, it might not have had or hit that hard just a few years uh, earlier if it had been made before then. And speaking of something that is just really, like, very obviously full of global war on terror imagery, we come to Children of Men by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, this is an adaptation of the P.D. James. Uh, unusual for a Misty writer. She went off and did a, a post-apocalyptic uh, novel. The apocalypse is that the birth rate has fallen to zero. People don't have kids anymore. And this has had a terrible effect on society, which is beginning to fall apart, including having, you know, full on terror attacks. So the 
you know, the imagery is not subtext, it's text. Mm-hmm. Clive Owen is our uh, sort of lead character who, in what is going to become a trend later, becomes the guardian figure for a uh, child savior, or in this case, a woman bearing a child's savior uh, who needs to be protected. Julianne Moore uh, plays the ex who comes back to him for help. And uh, Michael Caine is uh, once again on hand to evocatively provide philosophy and exposition in uh, Alfonso Cuaron's very convincingly rendered, grody, street-level, accessible, real uh, post-apocalyptic world. Yeah, his, his, his crapsack dystopia is very well portrayed in that when I watched it the first time, I was just mad as a hornet because the, the novel is better. It just is. And it does lots of different things than this movie does. And so I was very unfairly mean to it in my heart. And then I've seen it a couple of times since, and it really is a terrific film. Quaron does a great job with the production design. The direction is superb. Clive Owen, of course, is great. Once more as a soldier of the system who rebels against it and is smuggling a messiah. So we, we have old science fiction being folded back in. I maintain that for the film's chronology to work, Michael Caine should be an old punk, not an old hippie. But I understand that that would have sent a mixed message and we can't have that in an Alfonso Cuaron film, by golly. But it is it is an essential. It is uh, one of the best cinematic dystopias in terms of the the lived in grottily so quality of it. And it does absolutely, as you say, not even hint at literally comes right out and says this is the war on terrors leading us to this point. It's absolute political agenda, which is another thing that makes it, frankly, less of a work than the novel. But I said that already. Right. And Ken, for our, our final movie, speaking of trauma and solitude and dystopia, even the animated movies mm-hmm. are uh, going in that direction. And so you're going to finish by telling us about Wally by Andrew Stanton from 2008. Yeah. Wally is the story of a, a little robot, titular character Wally, who lives in the abandoned junk heap that is the Earth and decides because he's fallen in love with old movies, he wants to restore the earth. And in order to do that, a series of wacky misadventures takes him to the orbital compounds of the fat, happy humans who have left the earth behind and are living in paradise with all of their needs tended to by machines. And Wally is, shall I say, the serpent in that garden who brings knowledge of good and evil to them. Perhaps I should say that. But at any rate, as is so often the case, we find ourselves rooting for Satan. Milton is not the first or last person to notice he was doing that. And uh, at the end, we have a proper restorationist fantasy where, you know, we're going to return, we're going to plant a plant, and by dint of cartoon logic, it's going to grow and the earth can be saved and restored. And, uh, and that's the, uh, the cycle. So it's, it's really a fantasy story in a science fiction body wrapped around the frickin' book of Genesis and done as a amazingly good looking cartoon. In 2008, Wally was blow away level of animation. Even now, when we've seen, you know, just immense strides in animation, Wally still stands up. It's uh, gorgeous. And in a very real way, I think, we see that these animated films, as we saw with uh, The Iron Giant, are actually sort of the last reification of the old science fiction. This is the old utopia dystopia. This is the old uh, robots as carriers of wisdom trope that goes all the way back to Day the Earth Stood Still and uh, Silent Running. We're really seeing those seeds sprout and and grow to fullness, not in live action science fiction, which is we say is sort of going on to its own 
concerns, but in animation where I think because you've got a, a bigger bunch of people who have to sign off, it becomes more of a consensus reality project, I guess. Right. Well, we need to sustain this reality by moving swiftly through this commercial to the final segment of this episode. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing. We're going to give a little wave to the portrait of the fire salamander who's going to give us a little wink as we head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist, who this time around is going to tell us about a real person who became a legend and had a monkey and a skull-shaped pond that turned people into stone, or, well, parts of those are true. Yeah. (laughs) So, Ken, you're going to tell us about the witch and prophet and folkloric figure, Mother Shipton. Yeah, uh, Mother Shipton was supposedly born... In Mother Shipton's cave, which you would say, well, there's your prophecy right there. No, when she was born in the cave was St. Robert's Cave, but it's in Narrowsborough, Yorkshire. She was born uh, to a woman named Agatha Southall. She was born uh, during a thunderstorm. She cackled when she was born. She was born witchy, Robin, is what I'm saying. And, and we're just going to freely mix the made-up parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's more fun. Because we don't want to go through the story twice. Right. So, yes, apparently, for those of you looking for Cthulhu kids, for, for early Waitleys, the legend has it that she was born not only grotesquely ugly with a crone-like crooked nose, but that she was long-bodied had all sorts of uh, strange twists in her. In other words, she was full of crooked angles, Ken, Uh with red pimples, and that she glowed from within, giving such a light that they needed not a light to dress her by. Which, of course, is exactly the thing that happens when you were born in a cave where there's a skull-shaped pond that petrifies you, that turns you into stone if you step into it. Now, we'll fun ruin that a little. In reality, it's like a limey lake in a cave so it's actually just it gives you a calcium deposit the way any other stupid cave lake does but let's not ruin that story at that point right so anyway a a area friar comes by uh possibly attracted from the by the glowing and cackling from the cave and uh takes the little girl out of the cave and takes her mom out of the cave 
sends her mom far away from the cave because she's clearly an unfit mother. Right. And, and later on, there'll be other different versions of attending. Like in some stories, the father is a necromancer and mm-hmm. other stories, or the devil, the devil, or, and sometimes the mother is already a witch. And so there's all sorts of explanations for, you know, you know, weightly stuff. Yeah. Like you do. But anyway, he baptizes her Ursula. So she's Ursula Southill and she's put up with a local family who apparently is nice to her, but all the kids in Narrowsboro make fun of her for being a witch and you being should witchy. not make fun of her. Let no. me just, if you run into right. her, yeah, don't make uh, fun you of her. absolutely should not. Right. Cause if you have one of those rough collars, she can turn that collar into a toilet seat. Which is exactly the sort of thing a kid with witch powers would do. Yep. There's another story where uh, her tor- she has a bunch of tormentors and the city fathers come back to find them all running around naked with yokes put on them. So even as a kid, yep. you would think they wouldn't mess mess with her after the toilet seat incident. But no, apparently it took several lessons. And people accused her of being a witch and bad and was forced, hypnotized into walking up and putting herself in the stocks. And uh, having people throw stuff at her. So the area children learned to leave her alone, but she still liked it better off in the forest. So she goes off to become an herbalist in the forest. She grows up all witchy. She marries a local carpenter named Toby Shipton in 1512, takes his name. She's now Ursula Shipton. Right. You kind of feel that he drew the short straw there. Well, that was what the people of Narrowsboro thought, was that obviously there was some sort of witchery involved. And when he died in 1514, they were like, aha! That was clear witchery, and so she goes back to living in her cave, according to some people. Other stories have her have, like, a witch cottage in the forest, in Narrowsboro Forest, so maybe she keeps a summer place in the cave. I don't know. Anyway, so she does potions, she does curses, she also starts dealing in divination and prophecies, and her most famous prophecy is that Cardinal Wolsey would never enter York, that he would die before entering the city of York. And she lives right near York. And Cardinal Wolsey says, that's not going to happen. So he sends some nobles dressed as peasants up to visit her. And she's like, welcome, noble gentlemen. And she gives them cakes and ale. And they say, what's this nonsense about Cardinal Wolsey never seeing York? And she says, I didn't say that. I said he'd die before he entered it, but he's absolutely going to see York. And they said, well, we can't do anything with this woman. They go back and they tell Cardinal Wolsey and he says, I'm going to go to York and show her. And he gets to a hill outside York and he gets a message that the king wants him very urgently back in London for matters. And Wolsey's like, I have to go to London. Damn it. And sure enough, he dies on the way back in 1530. So everyone in Yorkshire tells this story, which is the kernel of the Mother Shipton legend forever. One assumes they did not be fond of Cardinal Wolsey, or at the, at the very least, they liked having a Londoner look like a jerk in a story. So that's my guess. But that that core element of the legend goes all the way back as far as we know, and it was oral tradition as far as we can tell, in Yorkshire, both before and after it started getting written down. So this is the thing we know she did was make a monkey out of Cardinal Wolsey. Now, speaking of monkeys, is the monkey familiar that she's later depicted with? Do we have any actual attestation of that? Or is that just cool embellishment? There is is no way to know. Uh, The oldest stories that I have seen ascribe a familiar to her, but in the same way that, well, she's a witch. Of course she has a familiar and it's not always a monkey. Sometimes it's a monkey. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that a witch would have a monkey. Monkeys were around in Yorkshire. I, I think if she had a monkey, it would always be a monkey. Right? It would always be a monkey. So maybe the monkey's a later edition, or maybe it's a shape changing familiar, Robin. It can turn into anything. Right. 
So she dies in 1561, but that, that's not the end of the story because it's it time not. to accrete more legend to her. Mm-hmm. Her prophecies, which, as I say, are absolutely, as far as we can tell, legend in Yorkshire. Everyone loves them. Many of them are about local events. So one assumes when a, a person comes to a bad end or something embarrassing happens, someone will say, ah, Mother Shipton predicted that, and they'll write it down. The list of them appears in print in an anonymous pamphlet in 1641. This is like right as the English Civil War is getting ready to to, to ramp up. It's already and ramped. Years I think. after her death, so it's had lots of time to become yeah. legend. And then in uh, 1645, William Lilly, the famous astrologer, includes 20 of her prophecies in a book, and he goes through, and most of them have already happened by then. He checks them all off. One or two of them had not yet. And during the English Civil War time, prophecies of all kinds were big money. You could make a lot of money by putting out a prophecy book. Because William it was Lilly. a time of chaos. You need yeah, the prophecies. Right. And, you, and you also were using them for political propaganda. So if you have a prophecy that makes the royalists look bad, you put that one out. Prophecy that makes the parliament look bad, you put that one out. So it's dueling propaganda, but it, it creates a big market for prophecies. After the Restoration, a guy named Thomas Thompson writes a play, a comic play, The Life of Mother Shipton, which... Uh, when you dig into it, it's actually about Agatha marrying the devil and having a baby who will grow up to be Mother Shipton. So, not much of a play. A new edition comes out in 1662, is reprinted. Of the prophecies, you mean. Uh, of the prophecies, yes, not the play. The play vanishes forever. Uh, the London fire happens, and Samuel Pepys writes that he heard Prince Rupert say, now Mother Shipton's prophecy has come to pass, because she, in fact, prophesied that there'd be a waterman on the Thames crying because there was no place to drink. And uh, sure enough, all the waterside bars had burned down in the Great Fire. A very famous version of her prophecies shows up first in 1667, so right on the heels of the fire. It's reprinted a number of times, most famously and successfully in 1684. The collector of those prophecies is a guy named Richard Head. Richard Head, who I love this entry in the National Biography Dictionary, says he was ruined by poetry and gaming, Robin. <laughs> Can you He's imagine? Like a lot of people I know. Like a lot of people we know. So anyway, uh, Richard Head is where a lot of the lore comes from, the sort of the backstory, all of the, you know, the caves and the monkeys and all this that shows up for the first time in Richard Head's, you know, sort of life of Mother Shipton that he writes to pad out a book of still 23 prophecies. And that's where a bunch of those details start is with Richard Head. The skull of Mother Shipton is briefly uh, an exhibit during the 1790s. Rackstow's Museum in Fleet Street exhibits it in 1792. So there's your MacGuffin people. It's still probably kicking around. And whether it was her actual skull or not, it is now mythically. Right. And it's also probably covered with calcium or something because it was dropped into the skull pool. The prophecies get reprinted again in 1797. Again, we've got a period of of turmoil and brouhaha. In 1862, a time relatively free of turmoil and brouhaha, a guy named Charles Hindley writes another Mother Shipton book. Right, but it's the beginning of a cult wave, so you need prophecies for that. Right, too. and and he begins to add new prophecies. So he makes up a pretend prophecy that she'd prophesied trains, and he uh, his big banger of a prophecy is the world to an end shall come in 1881. Oh, and never write down the number. That's... Never write down the number. There was indeed a panic in 1881, you know, Orson Welles War of the World style, where people with nothing better to do and rubes would all run around and scream. Right. And now is Hindley the one who has her predicting the telegraph, or is that somebody else? Yeah, that's Hindley. Anything that she's predicting that is modern is out of Charles Hindley's book. Yeah. 
So, yeah, she's famous. And as uh, you say, Robin, you know, if it wasn't her skull, it is now. It's folklorically true. She even gets in on the Druids action by being credited for erecting the Rollwright stones, which are standing stones in Oxfordshire. The version I read says it was Druids and Giants like it's supposed to be, but it turns out it might have been a guy who thought he was uh, going to be king, king of the north, and uh, Mother Shipton turns him into a bunch of stones. Oxfordshire is way out of her stomping grounds, which makes me think maybe this is another someone trying to just... Right, sort of someone's casting around for a, right. a famous witch who could have done this. And so yeah, they're trying to big up their Rollwright stone legend. Exactly. And, by, and by the time of mass printing, right, there's fortune telling books that are just like, it's Mother Shipton's book of fortune telling. Exactly. It yeah. And it's like, oh, it's dream interpretation. And right. She's, she becomes a name brand. Yeah. She's like yeah. Marie Laveau in New Orleans. She becomes yep. just a sort of generic witch uh, figure. We were talking on a past segment about what uh, animals might be associated with Carcosa. And we saw on, on the moth as one of those. So if you want to Tie that into her. There was a, a moth that was named after her, and it has its wings look like it has sort of the classic uh, hag profile uh, facing each other. And over the years, she becomes she starts to look more and more like a punch puppet in mm. the depictions of her. Yes, there is a terrific book by a scholar. I say scholar. I don't know he was a scholar. A guy named William Harrison, which makes him impossible to research, by the way, Robin, wrote a, <laughs> a book that was a, a examination of Mother Shipton. He basically just went to the British Museum, locked himself in, read every single one of these pamphlets and plays and everything, laid it out, and he then ends by saying Mother Shipton was the inspiration for Punch. And it's like, oh, William Harrison, you were doing so well. <laughs> but, you yes. know. Yeah, the way you cover they just say, it's difficult not to think of a parallel with, and there you're covered. You can <laughs> right, exactly. make that connection without saying uh, one caused the other. Right. So in 2017, there was a statue of her put up in Narsborough. I think it involved a Kickstarter. It's that, that recent. <laughs> However, it's a very heroic looking figure. She's not. Yeah, she doesn't look all witchy and weird. She's not bent up and messing with you. She doesn't have any Hounds of Tindalos angles to her at all. So that's uh, a. Uh, Frankly, more fun ruining as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But, you know, I guess local local girl makes good. You can't make her super witchy in these modern times. Right. So, you are covered for a whole lot of different eras yeah. for her. Uh, you can uh, start off with her in the uh, 15th century or move on from there. And uh, undoubtedly, uh, you could uh, fit her into uh, some sort of Cthulhu doings. You've already done that. She's sort yep. of. A, I mean, between the witch cult and the Yogg-Sothoth birth and the weird Tyndall's body, yeah, she's, she's got that covered as well. Over covered. Her skull could be a numinous object for the Yellow King or the Ezra terrorists, or you've got all sorts of directions. And of course, another MacGuffin could be a new document of prophecies that was previously suppressed because nobody needed the prophecies for the year 2026 you know, back 500 years ago, but you need it now. So it surfaces. Well, not least because the world was going to end in 1881. Right. Well, th that was a, that was some fake prophecy. Exactly. This is the real stuff, man. This is the real deal. Yeah. And, um, that could be, I mean, that's a classic esoteric move is you have a new bunch of mother Shipton prophecies. And now, you know, there's a, a terrible discovery channel special on her and she becomes big and it's like, what's going on? Why are we trying to make this witchy business happen again? And, is it just to drive tourism to Narrowsboro, or is there a darker, outer darkness going on? Well, I think we've covered our basis, therefore can declare uh, this episode complete and finished, and uh, therefore uh, start preparing for our next episode, which will be a mere week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Park Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep our familiars in monkey chow by joining such prophetic backers as... Nate Merritt. Urs Blumentritt. Andrew Dacey. Andy Young. And Benjamin Rawls. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.